Father, thank you for revealing yourself. That's one of the most flabbergasting sentences to be able to say, though it's true. Thank you for revealing yourself. You did not have to do that. You didn't need to, uh, especially to unworthy creatures. But thank you for doing so. And thank you for doing so in a, in a concrete deposit, your word written that we can pour over, look at, read and reread and try to really grasp what you're saying. So help us in this session today to get better at that. Grow us one step forward in our ability to handle your word accurately. And thank you for giving it to us. We, we want to know you. We want to know your mind so that we can rejoice in you, delight in you, obey you. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, what said... Uh, was has said 18 sessions up here if you can even see that light font we've I've actually added two recently uh, one being the role of the Holy Spirit in Bible interpretation it, that come later so now I think we've got 20 sessions but we're doing grasping God's word uh, as always I'm gonna give the students your appeal we need your help uh, every Sunday you show up if you're middle school high school if you'll stop at the grace kid table they'll ask you to help if they need help and we want you guys to rotate. They may come to this door and say, we need help. Uh, so if they do that and you hadn't served yet, then be the first to voluntold, volunteer. Uh, but that's the plan. All right, you guys know we're using Deval and Hayes, Grasping God's Word. And today's topic is the counterpart to one BJ let us in uh, recently. His historical context, this literary context, we'll define that. Uh, try to find that here in just a moment, uh, but it's obvious. The literature, the, the surrounding words, what is the context of the verse or passage we're studying? That's its literary context. So um, before we even get to definitions, let's remind ourselves of some basics of importance. This comes straight from page 149 of that book that I just referenced. The most important principle of biblical interpretation is that, wonder what you would put in the next phrase, context determines meaning. That'd be a summary of this whole class we're doing, right? Words don't have meaning apart from context, including the sentence I just said. Context gives meaning. We, We just live that way. And so when people try to redefine terms that all have assumed have a contextual meaning and try to redefine those, it confuses everybody. And if we're not living in a day of rank confusion, uh, I don't know what you've been listening to or looking at. But people are trying to redefine words. But context defines meaning. All right. Here's a sentence. God wants you to obey it. What does that mean? <laughs> Maybe this is just the message you've been waiting for. <laughs> yeah, just, just what you've been waiting to hear. Okay, so Duvall and Hayes use this illustration. Imagine you're walking across the parking lot at church on your way into the door. And a random person passes by you in the lot and says, go for it. 
do you take that message with religious seriousness? Because this morning you've been praying a lot about a big idea that they don't even know about. And do you conclude that God must be speaking to you through that person? Is this an answer to your prayers about your relationship dilemma? Or your decision regarding your new career choice? Or if you you should take that summer internship to unveil the meaning of go for it, you should be asking go for what? That question is your search for context. That gives meaning to the words. Without context, go for it could mean anything you want it to mean. Without context, words become meaningless. Now on page 149, our authors say, when it comes to interpreting and applying the Bible, context is crucial. In fact, we would go so far as to say that the most important principle of biblical interpretation is that context determines meaning, which is that quote I just put up there. So they would say that's the most important principle for Bible interpretation. Context determines meaning. When we ignore the context, we can twist the scriptures and, quote, prove almost anything. And then in another portion of this same chapter on literary context, they say, to understand and apply the Bible, we need to be concerned with two major kinds of context. And I've already said the words today. One was the lesson that BJ taught us on historical context. And the other is our lesson for today, literary context. So in historical context, very quick, gross oversimplification summary, the historical, cultural background of a text. Okay, that's historical context. What was, a, what was going on historically? What would the cultural uh, original audience have intuitively understood that maybe we don't? This was lesson number six. You can find that lesson on the Grove podcast series. Uh, It was March 19th, if you want to go back and reacquaint yourself with that. Literary context, here's our working definition for today, relates to the particular form a passage takes. That's the literary genre. And to the words, sentences, and paragraphs that surround the passage. That's the surrounding context. So what kind of literature is it, genre, and what are the words around it? That's the surrounding literary context. So when we talk about literary genre, uh, many of you know what we're talking about. Some of you may be new to this. Both of those are A-OK. What are some examples of different genres in the Bible? Literary genre, types of writing. What, what are some of those types? Historical narrative. Yeah, historical narrative. And give us an exa- a, a place in the Bible where we might find the kind of thing you say. Genesis. Yeah, so that's a nar- big narrative, historical. What's another kind? Poetry. Yeah, poetry. Where would we find that? Psalms. Psalms. What's another kind? Apocalyptic Yeah, where would we find it? Daniel. Yep. Another one? Wisdom. Yep, where would we find it? Proverbs. There you go. What's another kind? There's one or two more that I'm thinking of, but there's probably more than that. Epistles. Yep. Yeah. New Testament epistles, those are very propositional. Um, And then I would put gospel as a, it's kind of a unique animal. It's historical, it's it's historical narrative. 
but it's kind of its own breed of style of writing. So those are different types of genres. So if you're reading poetry, you might want to have some interpretive antenna up that help you interpret it accurately, like the way the human author and the divine author intended, that might be different tools in your tool bag that would, you would use than if you were reading a historical narrative. Okay? Big sweeping account in the book of First Samuel. Okay? That's what, we're, that's what we're talking about today, the literary context. So one thing you need to know is the literary genre, and the other thing you need to know is the surrounding context. Okay? So we're going to try to dice that up in five ways. The first is, what is it? What is literary genre? Second, what is surrounding context? Those are the two categories from that definition I just gave. Dangers of disregarding the literary context. How to identify the surrounding context. And then a conclusion, which is going to be a biblical example. All right. So what is literary genre? You've, you guys have already answered this, but to put it in terms of the the resource we're using to guide us. Literary genre simply refers to the different categories or types of literature found in the Bible. You've just explained what that is or given examples, but let's put them in Old and New Testament. What types of genre might we run into reading 39 books in the Old Testament? Well, you'll run into narrative, law, poetry, prophecy, and wisdom. And then that prophetic, Ben mentioned Daniel, apocalyptic. Uh, we'll, we'll define that in just a moment. In the New Testament, you'll run into gospel, history, book of Acts, letters or epistles, like April was saying. As Ben was mentioning, apocalyptic, which is in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, which is literally the apocalypse, is the title of that book. So, both Old and New Testament feature a number of subgenres. These are the big ones, but you're going to get parables in the Gospels. That's a that's a unique animal in and of itself. Like, how do you how do you interpret a parable? Jesus said about one of them, "If you don't understand this one, how will you understand all the rest?" So maybe there's a key in that one that help us in all the other ones. That's the four fields, four soils. Riddles, right? There's some riddles in the Old Testament, some riddles in the New Testament. There's also sermons. The book of Deuteronomy is three sermons. Jesus preached three chapters of Matthew as a sermon. There's, you know, nearly double-digit sermons in the book of Acts. They're in the middle of the historical narrative, like Peter's sermon from the day of Pentecost. So knowing what you're dealing with will help you to interpret it well. So is Matt Nash in the room? Of course not. Oh, appreciate you, Matt. I was going to put him on the spot to give us an example of Hebrew parallelism from Psalm 33 with the word poverty and iniquity. The same word in Psalm 33, but it's written as a parallel. Okay, so just knowing kind of what you're dealing with will help you. All right, so I'm going to use a silly illustration that I didn't make up, but it was in the book, and I'm going to 
put some pictures on it. All right, playing by the rules. This comes from a book by Robert Stein, A Basic Guide to Interpreting the Bible, Playing by the Rules. And this is Stein's, I'm just going to quote him, and then we'll unpack this illustration. Think for a moment of a European soccer fan attending his first American football and basketball game. All right, in football, the offense and defensive players can use their hands to push their opponents. In basketball and soccer, they cannot. So you picture a football player pushing somebody. In basketball, players cannot kick the ball, but they can hold it with their hands. In soccer, which most of the world calls football, the reverse is true. In football, everybody can hold the ball with their hands, but only one person can kick it. It's kind of interesting that we call it football, right? Nobody can use their feet, but we call it football. All right? In soccer, everyone can kick the ball, but only one person can hold it. So here, everybody can hold it, but one person can kick it. Here, nobody can hold it, but one person can hold it, but everybody can kick it. Unless we understand the rules under which the game is played, what is taking place is bound to be confusing. So you just look at these three images and you immediately intuit some things that you know are different. But you don't even think about it because you know the basic rules, or many of us know the basic rules. In a similar way, there are different game rules involved, this is Stein, in interpreting the different kinds of biblical literature. So if you're dealing with history or gospel or apocalypse or narrative, if you saw them like you see these images, you would immediately intuit different ways of faithfully, responsibly handling them. But sometimes we just treat them all the same and inevitably, unintentionally make some mistakes. Like, teach a child the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. How many parents have bludgeoned themselves with guilt because their children went wayward in the faith? because somebody told them that verse. That's in what book of the Bible? Proverbs. What type of literature is that? It's a proverb. <laughs> right? Yeah, so, yeah, it's in this wisdom literature category, but the subgenre, it is a proverb. So is it to be interpreted like the New Testament epistles have propositions that hang on one another it's like a a ground statement and underneath it you can indent the things that are true because of it is it the exact same kind of literature no but we can look at these images and say okay we understand there's some differences although they're all a sport similarly and let me let me keep reading stein the author has played his game That is, he has sought to convey his meaning. But he's done it under the rules covering the particular literary form that he's using. 
unless we know those rules, we will almost certainly misinterpret his meaning. Right? If you shoot this in a hoop, you get no points. If you throw that through the goal, you get no points. Right? It's different. It, all sports, but played by different rules. Hope you get the illustration. I think it's a helpful illustration to think about the different genres of the Bible and how to interpret them. All right, how does writing work? Even though the author and reader cannot have a face-to-face conversation, they do meet each other in the text. Well, oh, shoot, I already said the answer. They are able to communicate because they subscribe to a common set of rules, the rules of that genre. Right? So you've got to meet your author in the passage according to whatever interpretive rules would apply to the genre. And by the way, I said earlier we added some I added some more lessons like the role of the Holy Spirit in interpretation. We don't want I, I hope this class does not reinforce you can understand the Bible really well if you got the six right tools in your tool belt for whatever genre you're looking at if you're not dependent on the Holy Spirit. Like there's definitely a spiritual dynamic to correct Bible interpretation, but there's also an irresponsible Bible interpretation that doesn't use any tools and says you're depending on the Holy Spirit. Okay, so what is the surrounding context? This one's, I think, pretty apparent, but let's see it build out. So you have a passage in front of you. How far does surrounding context go? What do you need to know about the verses before and after? How many verses before or after? Before you can accurately understand your passage. Surrounding context refers to the text that surround the passage you are studying. That's the textual world in which your text lives. That's what we mean by surrounding context, the verses around it. So I want you to think about concentric circles and five aspects of surrounding context. We're talking about words, sentences, paragraphs, discourses. It can be the immediate context of your passage. It could be the whole book that you're studying. I said two weeks ago, the key passage of the book of 1 Timothy is the last three verses of chapter 3. But I hope I didn't just make that up. The verse literally says, I wished I could, I, I want, I wanted to come to you, but I write so that. Like he literally tells us why he wrote it. So everything before it has something to do with that, and everything after it has something to do with that. So the whole book can be your surrounding context, and not to make you feel like you can never understand a verse, but not to apologize for saying it, the whole Bible. That's why we said last week you can't have an interpretation of a passage, no matter how faithful you think it is to those words, that conflicts with a fundamental Christian faith belief. If you get to a conclusion that wars against the deity of Christ, you can be absolutely certain your conclusion is wrong. He learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He's also omniscient. You can't forfeit omniscience when you agree that he learned. So you need the whole Bible to interpret one verse. All right, so let's build out in concentric circles. Five aspects to the surrounding context. In the middle, and we'll move out. First is your passage. Around it is the immediate context. Around that is the rest of that section. 
Around that's the rest of that book, and obviously around that is the rest of the whole Bible. That's how you should see the verse you're looking at or passage you're looking at. All right, let's do an exercise with a familiar verse. Uh, Somebody read this to break my monotony. Uh, Let's go with Tracy Thomas. What a volunteer. 1 Peter 5-7, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Familiar verse. It's a New American Standard rendering of 1 Peter 5-7. All right, so this is something we would all benefit ourselves by doing because we all have anxieties. And we should cast all of those, not some of them, all of them should be cast. But there's a reason motivated by this, because he cares for you. But here's the surrounding context, literary context. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You may already see it. How, uh, um, spit out a question, Jordan, without the answer in it. (laughs) Um, I don't know how to do that, so I'm going to show you this slide. Humble yourselves. How do you humble yourself? Casting. So casting your anxiety on him is the way to obey the command to humble yourself. Cast is actually a participle in the language. It's an I-N-G word. It's a casting. So the context reveals that humbling ourselves before God means this is what humbling looks like. Humility is not a deferential spirit. Humility is not being soft-spoken. Humility is not being a doormat for Jesus. Humility is not saying yes to everybody's request. Humility is an entrusting of our concerns and our troubles to God. And it's a doing so because we know that he loves us. Pride says, the opposite of humility, I can bear this burden on my own. Humility throws the burden on God. So the way to humble yourself is to do the casting. So you have to have a little bit of surrounding context to know what humbling yourself means. It means throwing your burdens and anxieties on the Lord and doing so because you know he's on your side. All right, I hope that helps just a little bit. There's so many epistle passages like that. All right, um, what if we don't do it? Let's think of several Warnings. I'll do a warning for us personally. I'll do a warning for preachers and for churches. Uh, we'll see if we get to all those. All right, here's a personal warning. I already said if you ignore context, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. 
but you can't do that unless you disregard the context. You can snatch verses out of context. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's true. It just doesn't mean what our culture wants to often say that it means. Okay. Um, A familiar verse, Revelation 3.20. Let's have a new volunteer to break the monotony again. Let me read it. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. Okay, so Revelation 3.20 is a familiar verse. It's commonly used to describe Jesus' promise to anyone who might accept him savingly, accept him as Lord, as Savior. He certainly will come to those people. He certainly will sup with those people. It's not what the verse is about. Because it's seen individualistically, it's often used evangelistically. If you open your heart to Christ, he promises to enter. That's true. We should use a different passage to say it, because that's not what this passage is about, although we may underline it with this passage. In context, Revelation 3.20 is written to whom? Church. Yeah, a, a church. So this is a promise from the risen Christ to a congregation of lukewarm Christians. And he assures those disobedient believers that he's ready and waiting to renew fellowship with them together. He's at their door. He's knocking. If they'll repent, if they will open their hearts and lives to him. This verse applies directly to Christians who have been Christians who have been living out of communion with Christ, apart from communing with him. There's other, a lot of other super common examples. Uh, Matthew 18, 20. I may go to that in a minute. Matthew 7, 1. Anybody know Matthew 7, 1? I think it might be the most popular verse in the American Christian subculture. What does that verse say? Yeah, judge not lest you be judged. The very same chapter, 11 verses later, Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. Do we or don't we? <laughs> Judge. Yes. Uh, but, yeah. Uh, Philippians 4.13, I've mentioned. A lot of verses like that. There's a personal warning. All right, here's a preacher warning. Taylor, my oldest daughter, asked me about topical preaching this week. Uh, like, oh, I'm teaching a grow class on that. Um, for too often, topical preaching distorts the meaning of Scripture by disregarding the literary context. Give me an example of bad topical preaching, and then give me an example of good topical preaching. What's First, what is topical preaching? Preaching on a topic. <laughs> yeah. Pick a topic. Talk about it. Pick a topic and find some scripture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I know a good illustration. Now let me build a whole sermon around it. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So that's topical preaching. What? Give me an example of bad topical preaching. God wants you to have everything you desire. Yeah. So there's your topic, and you find some verses to support it. Yeah. Um, I'm not. You know, I've heard uh, some died in the wool to their bone expository only like through books of the Bible never take a break for any reason just whatever the next passage go for it I'm not quite there though I'm almost there and I've heard some of those 
in that tribe say things like, it's okay to preach topical sermons every once in a while so long as you repent for doing it. Uh, so, um, but good, I think good topical preaching is just expositional preaching from a passage that's under the theme that you're talking about. So you're preaching the passage faithfully in its context in a series of sermons on the topic of whatever that passage is. Uh, so I'm under no delusion that we're doing this super well. I hope we're still growing in this, but an example. Last fall we did an overview of the Bible series, topical. We did a series on God's love last year, topical. Hopefully we treated the passages fairly in their context, but I think we've got to grow in that. Here's an example from the book of expository preaching versus topical preaching. This will kind of tune your antenna as you listen to sermons to be a good expositional listener. That's, that's my motive right now. Uh, so John chapter 10 is about what? Yeah, yeah. Jesus is the gate. Jesus is the shepherd. He's the good shepherd. John 10, uh, nobody can snatch his people out of his hand, secure. All right, that's, that's a quick summary of John 10. So John has thoughts lined up. One, two, three, four. And then he has a conclusion. Nobody can snatch you out of my Father's hand. This is a secure salvation. I'm the shepherd. You're the sheep. I'm in control. And so the sermon should, should trace that expositorily, just showing, expositing, exposing what is there. An example of topical preaching from the same passage, the book gives this example. John 10, Psalm 23, Acts 2. Okay? So John has thoughts lined up, but a topical sermon might take John's first thought, ignoring the remaining, connect to Psalm 23's third thought. What would be an example in Psalm 23? Lord's my shepherd. John at one. Okay? So you get this thought from John, you get this thought from Psalms, and then you get something Peter said in Acts 2 in the middle of his flow of thought. And then you string them together. You might preach a faithful sermon doing that. You might come out with something God would be thrilled to come out of his word. But the danger is you might not. (laughs) So it's easy to just string random thoughts together. And uh, I think I've made some errors of what I'm about to show you in a moment. Um, In my preaching, in my own quiet time devotions, but before I get too far ahead of myself, how can we do this well? Identify the surrounding context, literary context of a passage. When you identify the surrounding context, Duvall and Hay said, we're asking you to see how the sentences fit together in a book to communicate a message. How the small units connect to the larger units. So here's a, here's a helpful guiding question for our Bible interpretation. If you're reading your Bible... What would happen if the passage you're reading was not in the book that you're reading? How would it change? What would be different? So seeing how that fits into the larger narrative will help you, the larger flow of thought of the book. Um, I'm going to read two more quotes, and then we're going to do some examples. Our main goal is to identify how an author's flow of thought, uh, thought flows through each part of the book to form a whole. 
So I remember when Clyde was teaching me how to have a quiet time. And he said, let's say, I'm not a big movie guy, but he said, let's say a movie, there's a movie you really wanted to see. You heard people talk about how great it is, but you'd never seen it, didn't know anything about it. And we sat down, this is in VHS days. Uh, and he said, we fast forwarded to about the middle and watched two minutes. Rewound to about the first third, watched a minute. Fast forwarded to the last quarter, watched a minute. Backed up, watched not quite the beginning, but right after that. And then fast forward to not quite the end, but that. Would you feel like you understood the story of the movie? Probably not. Could you say some things that were accurate? Yeah. Characters' names or events that happened in the movie. But you wouldn't understand it. And at that point in my life, I had never had daily devotions through a book of the Bible. And his basic... um, encouragement to me was to pray through books of the Bible, not just read them, talk with God about what's in there. And the sense of accomplishment when you get done is, wow, I just talked with God about a whole book of the Bible. There's something really joyful, uh, wholesomely encouraging about that. But guess what? You also realize, wow, this book makes sense. Like he started somewhere and he went somewhere. And there's a flow of thought through this book. I remember the first time that hit me by experience. Like, that's really encouraging. I wonder if other books are like that. Go figure. (laughs) They are. Instead of just kind of randomly flipping around, which God ministers to us that way, a much more responsible way to see the whole book's form uh, as a whole. Last quote um, before our example. When our interpretation contradicts literary context, including the genre and surrounding context, we violate the way people normally use language to communicate, and our interpretation is not valid. We can't contradict what's around the verses with whatever meaning we think we're getting. So I want you to think about um, a big log on a tree set on a chopping block and you're about to hit it with the axe to split it for firewood. A book of the Bible is like the whole thing. If you hit it with an axe hard enough, it's going to split, but it's also going to split along its natural divisions, right? Where the seams are in the wood is where it's going to split. So if you've seen somebody hit a, hit a log hard enough, with one fell swoop, it might split into three parts. That's because it has weaker points in it. So that's what this is about. So you hit this on the top, and you might not see it, but if this is big enough, there's a little seam there, and there's a little seam there, and there's a little seam there, and there's a little seam there. All right. If you pick up one of those parts and put it on the chopping block, and hit it, the same thing will happen. Books of the Bible are like that. They have natural sections. And when you hit it with hard thought and prayer, you start to see the sections. Then if you take one section and put it on the chopping block and hit it with a lot of hard thought and prayer, you'll see the subsections. And if you do it again, you'll see divisions underneath those subsections all the way down to verses and words 
So, Book of Romans has two parts. 1 to 11, 12 to 16. The first part, 1 to 11, y'all know what that means. Uh, the first part, 1 to 11, has sections. 1 to 3, my estimation, 4 to 7, 8 to 11. Those are three sections in the first part. Each of those has parts. One to three. Guess who sinners are? Jews, uh, Gentiles, Jews, and all people. That's Romans one to three. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God is the conclusion of the first section where Paul's shown that Gentiles, Jews, and all are sinners. Four to six, justification by faith alone. Culminating in seven with Paul's woes about man that I am. 8 to 11, God's providential grace and salvation. His, his incredible great eight grace providentially, Romans 9, applied to all peoples, 10 and 11, Gentiles and Jews, the same people that he said are all sinners. And then 12 to 16 is how to live. Well, that just takes looking at it and hitting it and you know chopping it and seeing how those fall. But that's what we try to do with our sermon text is just show how a book breaks down into sections. And not everybody's going to agree exactly on where the divisions are, but seeing how they relate to the whole. Like Brian and I were talking this week about Psalm 36, 11, uh, 38, 11, and 12. Our psalm study stops at verse 11. Our thinking is that verse 12 goes more with 11 than 13. And so we were just talking about that. And maybe, I mean, I can see it both ways. So not everybody's going to agree exactly where the divisions fall, but you'll start to see those the more you hit the law uh, with prayer and thought. So how to find that? Identify how the book is divided into paragraphs and sections. Summarize the main idea of each section. I just tried to show you how I do that with Romans. Explain how your passage relates to the surrounding sections. And when you start to see that, it's just it's a joyful playground. The Bible starts to make a lot more sense and God's mind starts to form the way you think. You're following his thoughts with your own. My little pea brain is thinking the thoughts of the infinite God. It's just such an encouraging thing to do. Um, okay. This is what I'm going to do for second time. Uh, so when you identify a paragraph or section... Look for parts in it. We've talked about all the yellow things, conjunctions, topic changes. Consult to see how other study Bibles all have outlines uh, of each book in the front of it. You can just go see somebody else's outline of the book, see if you agree with what they see as the divisions. And then as you summarize each section, you may adjust your earlier divisions. Like, no, that verse goes with that section, not the following section. All right, here's how I'm going to stop in the conclusion, ultimately disregarding the literary context of the Bible hurts people by robbing them of God's liberating truth. It's a quote from 161. Because otherwise you're going to make it say something that it may not have been intended to say. All right, I wanted to go to a passage in Matthew, which I'm going to look up here and put on the screen if we have any other time. But uh, what questions, comments, or helpful support contribution that any of you have.
stuff. Thoughts, comments, questions? Have you ever done this with a book of the Bible? Tried to see the divisions on your own? If so, what book? How'd you do it? done this with the book of the Bible? You can, you can not pay attention to this while I'm looking for a passage that I want to put up. you asked that because let, let's put that verse on the screen that's 1 Peter 3.20 okay if this will work I'm going to project this screen um, there's 1 Peter 3 I'm going to make it bigger there we go about that big 3 right here Okay. Okay. Not but, right? So here's a not. Whoop, sorry. Not this, but something. Okay, so how does baptism save you? I agree that that sentence is true. Baptism does save you. The Bible says it right there. So you got to believe it or disbelieve the Bible. It does save you. Not this way, but another way. How, what's the not? Right? So, so it's not outward. Right? The water's not doing it like getting dirt off your body. Not that. That's not the way baptism saves. How does it save you? As an appeal to God for a good conscience. How? through the resurrection of Christ. This is, this is actually a fantastic example for literary context, Ben. Thank you for asking. So, what is this? Now, I'm not asking you to tell me what this, what the words say. I know you can read it, if you can see it. An appeal to God for a good conscience. Put that word in another, use another word to describe this phrase. Appeal to God. Use it. Plea. Say it again. Plea. Plea. What's, I think somebody said another word? Confession. Confession? Yeah. Those are forms of what? And prayer. Right? Does prayer save you? No. No. We use in our common vernacular, right? Just because you prayed a prayer. Right? It's a common way of talking. But Jesus did say, whosoever... Yep. and confesses with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you'll be saved. Or whosoever 
calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a form of prayer. So, so look at this. Baptism does save you, not by taking dirt off of your body, but like prayer saves you. How does prayer save you? It's submitting your conscience to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're fundamentally not trusting your prayer. Just like you're not trusting your baptism to clean your body as a form of saving you, rather, you're using... I'm sorry for all my moving around. You're taking your baptism as a prayer to God, but your ground, the ground of your hope is not your baptism or your prayer. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ who is at the right hand of God, who is in heaven, and above all power and authority and everything else that's subjected to him. So I would say baptism saves you, not like our Campbellite friends, Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ. I think they're fundamentally wrong about the gospel. You can't believe what their doctrines teach and be saved because it's adding a work to the work of Christ that you're trusting in besides him. But I love this example, brother. Thank you for bringing it up. And I don't know if you guys uh, can track the way I'm seeing this passage work, but I would say it's baptism saves you, not by cleaning your outside, but like a prayer saves you because you trust in the risen Jesus. That's how baptism saves you.